Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, January 4th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The leaked audio of Donald Trump railing at Georgia election officials is one of those documents of which the provenance says so much. Originally, I assumed, maybe you did too, it was the Georgians who leaked it. The Georgians, on the receiving end of the president's hour-long, let's say, blather, they put it out there to show just how unreasonable the guy was being. There's some evidence Politico did report that it was taped on the Georgians' end, Raffensburger's end, and maybe they were the ones who put it out there. But then I got to thinking about the alternative. Maybe the Trump team leaked it because the audio sounds a little clearer of him talking. So whoever was on the receiving end, maybe they were rolling too, but it didn't sound like he was talking through speakers as much as they were. But I think it's very important to know who leaked it because then we could begin to understand Trump and his motives. Was Trump being delusional because he is delusional? Or was he being delusional as strategy? Was he being tactically delusional? These are the sorts of arguments, after all, that he would put forth before a crowd of cheering masses including one of the arguments would be that you, you cheering masses, you mean that I couldn't lose. They say it's not possible to have lost Georgia. And I could tell you by our rallies. I could tell you by the rally I'm having on Monday night, the place they already have lines of people standing out front waiting. And then on this tape, he goes all Haley Joel Osment on us. Dead people. So dead people voted. And he just gives voice to a half dozen other risible or really, in some cases, execrable theories. The question is, does he believe this conspiracy garbage or is he using it to rally his supporters? I mean, that's why he would be saying these things into a microphone that people would cheer about. But making these arguments on a closed phone call that he never expect to see the light of day indicates that he is daft and unstrategic. These ridiculous notions have no chance of convincing the other people on the line, the actual experts. Doesn't even have a chance of convincing merely sane people. So to give voice to these theories to the Georgians doesn't make a lot of sense. But leaking out the tape as another means of advancing the argument to your people that it becomes a tactical delusion. By the way, I don't think it will work. I really hope it won't. But I really think it will not change the result to what he wants. But what it could do is serve his purposes as he solidifies himself as a figure of grievance, support, and sympathy. Sympathy among those very crowds whose presence he claims as dispositive proof of his victory. 
There was, however, one aspect of this tape that wasn't merely curious or risible or shocking, but was disturbing on a human level. He focused so much of his ire on one heretofore anonymous election worker. Well, she's not anonymous among QAnon and conspiracy circles, but her name, and I'm going to say the name now, even though many news organizations bleeped it out. Her name is Ruby Freeman. She is a Democratic election worker. She is a ballot counter. She lives in Georgia. She worked as a Democratic observer. She likes the Democratic Party, and she wants them to win elections fairly. It would seem all evidence is fairly. She's passionate about politics. Report says she owns a handbag kiosk at the mall. She's a 60-year-old black woman. So as the source of Trump's hatred, maybe that demographic isn't too shocking. And she's definitely become the source of fervid conspiracies. And now those conspiracies have officially reached the highest level. Ruby Friedman, that's, uh, she's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and Hustler, Ruby Freeman, Ruby Freeman, Ruby Freeman. Where's Ruby? Where's Ruby? Ruby, the Ruby Freeman night. Where's Ruby? Ruby, where's Ruby? To be clear, there is no evidence that Ruby Freeman did anything but assist in the recount. There are many online rumors about her. Many of those have been proved false. She has not been arrested. Why I am saying her name is to just point out that this is going on. And it makes the president's horrible behavior more resonant and more salient, I think, to think about the actual person who is on the receiving end of this ire. So it's not just a name and a bleep and a concept of someone being insulted, but imagine being her. Imagine being her daughter, who was also mentioned by Trump, a Democratic Party activist one day who gets turned into the greatest dirty political trickster of all time, someone who denies a teeming horde of lunatics from the leader, from the hero they so desire. What a shameful calumny, I say. And it's not an affront to an abstract concept like democracy or rule of law or the will of the people. It's a shameful affront to an actual woman, a woman named Ruby, who does not deserve any of this. On the show today, I shall spiel about Ken Jennings drinking from that chalice of online vitriol, the most potent potable of all, Twitter. But first, David Shore is a fairly brilliant political scientist, an analyst, who I think has offered the most trenchant ideas about the 2020 election. They're maybe not revolutionary ideas. They're ideas along the lines of, listen to what the voters are saying. Don't tell them things they hate. But I wanted to have David by in a couple of parts just because I've been enjoying his analysis that I've been hearing elsewhere and had a couple of truly burning questions I needed to ask him. David Shore, up next. David Shore is a researcher and a consultant for Democratic politicians who first began working for the Obama administration as a very precocious, number-crunching 20-year-old. He has helped Obama win. He has helped other Democrats win. He has data-backed opinions about tactics that cause some Democrats to lose. One is embodied in slogans like, abolish ICE. I'm not in favor of abolishing ICE. I say there needs to be some enforcement of immigration laws. Let's just enforce them better. Let's not throw away the laws or 
have the laws but throw away the enforcement. Know who agrees with me? All but 24% of the American public. So I wouldn't campaign on this issue because it's unpopular. Now, some progressives disagree. They say you can change minds if you campaign on unpopular issues. But what they don't realize, or at least don't acknowledge, is that has costs. Championing an unpopular idea might make it more popular, but it might make you and your party even more unpopular than whatever you gain on the idea itself. When a politician advocates for any agenda item, not only is he or she talking to their potential or current followers, they're talking to other people who might very well disagree with them. With this in mind, I started by asking David Shore, what is the effect of all of that that I have just described? That's a great question. Something I like to say is that a lot of Democrats say, you know, the problem with Democrats is that we talk too much about issues and not enough about our values. And that's actually completely backward. You know, the whole problem is that swing voters don't share our values. If they did, they would be partisan Democrats. Instead, you know, they agree with us on a bunch of different issues and they're cross-pressured in different ways. And so I think you get this situation where you have kind of two kinds of voters. And, you know, and obviously in the real world, there's a spectrum, but, you know, you, kind of, you can imagine there's two kinds of voters where you have hard partisans, you know, people who are always Democrats and always Republicans. And the reason why these hard partisans are partisans isn't necessarily about specific issues. Uh, they might have these real convictions, but also there's a lot of flexibility. You know, like Democrats used to be against trade and then Obama comes out in favor of trade and then suddenly, you know, they, they, it all changes and you see the opposite happen with Republicans. Or in the same way, you know, when a bunch of liberal activists talk about abolishing ICE, suddenly abolishing ICE goes from 10% to 30%. And all of that happens among these Democrats. So that happens for people on the on the extremes. But people in the middle aren't like that. You know, they don't have this natural inclination to vote one party or the other on the basis of the values they hold. And they also don't trust Democratic or Republican politicians. So they're not going to take cues from Vox and decide that actually we need to abolish ICE. They're just going to say Democrats are crazy and they're going to switch. And so that's kind of the trade-off is that you have at the same time what political scientists call this follow the leader effect, that when a party embraces an issue, people in their party will change their mind to support that issue. But you also have this other effect where the swing voters who disagree with you are going to switch parties. And that trade-off is real. And I think that it really shows the limits of, I think, a really broad swath of activism that's really designed to get Democrats to embrace unpopular issues. You know, when you do that, you do, it's true, you know, you can get an issue from 10% to 30% by getting Democrats to go and embrace something, but you can never get it from 30% to 70%. And that's what you need, you know, like in order to make these policies actually happen, in order for these policies to get enacted, you need these issues to be at 60% or 70%. When did Democrats embrace uh, gay marriage? You know, they waited until it was at 60. When did they embrace marijuana legalization? Like when did the legalization was pulling at 60? And so the question is like, how do you get to that and, you know, the answer is that politicians don't actually affect what swing voters think about issues. If you care about issues, you have to persuade them a different way. And, you know, there are different ways to do that. I think that as the demographics of the country change, you know, as the country gets more secular, as the country gets more educated, that creates more fertile ground. You know, immigration is still 
relatively unpopular, but it's much, much more popular than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And, you know, that's because the country is more educated. You know, the other other thing, and I think this is what was key to success behind uh, both marijuana legalization and gay marriage, is changing how the media portrays these issues. There was this great study that looked at, you know, newspaper coverage of, uh, of LGBT issues. You know, the big inflection point, like attitudes on homosexuality were actually basically steady right up until about 1993, 1994. And it really coincided with the creation of the first, you know, syndicated uh, LGBT issues column that was, you know, put into newspapers around the country. And that, just, you know, that was the start of a bunch of sympathetic coverage about LGBT individuals. And that is what kind of started this mass opinion change. We're going to dear Abby our way into societal change. We're going to Marilyn Voss savant ourselves into a socialist paradise. I think the reality of the world we live in is that, you know, the median voter is 50 years old and the median 50 year old watches about six hours a day of television. In the 90s, they used to read newspapers too. Now, eh, not so much. So you know, that, that avenue isn't as important. Given that that's what people are doing, you know, the median American, you know, wakes up, goes to work, spends most of the remainder of their day either sleeping or watching television. It doesn't, it seems bleak, but that is, that is the actual reality of like what people do uh, with their time. That means that if you wanna persuade them, if you want to change how they think about really fundamentally held core values, you're not going to get them to do that by having politicians who they don't even trust give speeches one way or the other. You're going to have to do it via the, the media that they consume. And that's like a hard persuasion problem. You know, I, I think if you look at what's what was successful with gay marriage and, you know, what a lot of these you know, RCTs around persuasion have shown is, you know, you have to do it via addition and not subtraction. You want to cast people as sympathetic rather than shame people as being bigots. If you take the sum total of that, of how do you do this long-term cultural change, it doesn't look like a lot of the political activism that grabs headlines in the media. So I want to talk about the protests over the summer because you were citing, I listened to an interview you with you where you were citing some evidence that only two things really change voters' opinions. This doesn't mean they're the only two important things. And one was President Trump using pepper spray outside the White House. And another was the protesting, maybe especially the Kenosha and Milwaukee protesting, but protesting in the nature of protesting writ large. So first of all, am I getting that about right? Yeah. You know, the only caveat I'd say on the second one, like I, I am actually pretty confident. There was a, a big spike in the polls after the uh, Lafayette Park incident for Biden. And then there was a definitely a decline over like a two to three week period in August. A lot of things happen in August. You know, I think you have, you know, the RNC, you have, um, you do have what was happening in Kenosha and you uh, also had some of the Czech stuff. But looking at it holistically, I think Kenosha in the broader protests around it probably had a pretty big effect. Right. So there is uh, the debate is that did the phrase defund the police hurt centrist uh, Democrats uh, who were running for office tied up with that is what about the nature of the protests? And you have noted that Democrats get rated highly on improving race relations, but Republicans get rated highly on controlling crime. So I think what happened with the protests, fairly or unfairly, once the message of that, when it was mostly peaceful, and to think of the protest is to think of a project of race relations, Democrats are going to do well. But then when you think of the protests as 
an example of lawlessness, Republicans are going to do well. And I don't know the extent to which Democrats perceive that to be the case. I mean, if you just indulge me for a second, I think most Democrats, fair-minded, middle-of-the-road Democrats, would say of protesting, turning into looting or violence, something like, look, it's wrong, it's terrible, we deplore it, this should not be the way it is expressed. But they don't see the difference between nonviolent protests and rioting and looting as a difference between a good thing and a horrible thing that must be stopped at all costs. They see it as a poor, regrettable expression of um, a decent underlying cause. The problem is the median voter, swing voters, impressionable voters actually kind of flip a switch and they look at it differently. And I don't know that Democrats are really understanding how those voters are now experiencing the protests. Yeah, I, I, I think the whole reason that liberals are liberals is that they care a lot more about some things and they care a lot less about other things. Some of the most important rules about politics are that people really, really hate crime. Like, really. I uh, can't stress that one enough. And also people hate taxes. Uh, those are those are just two things, like when you ignore those two things, then even in the most liberal jurisdictions in the country, Republicans will win elections. You know, R Rudy Giuliani won as mayor in New York, you know, because crime went up. There are Republican governors in Vermont and Maryland and Massachusetts because voters don't like taxes. You know, in, in Maryland, it was a road tax. And obviously in Vermont, it was the specter of single payer. Those are some hard rules, even in, even in these blue states. You know, you can have these left-leaning independent voters, but fundamentally they don't share the same values that we do. And that's something that we have to be really cognizant of if we want to maintain power. If you look at the protests and you call them looting and you call them rioting, a liberal might say, that's a mischaracterization. What about the underlying cause? You know, okay, some windows get smashed, but it's really important that this is still about racial justice. That is not how the people they're trying to persuade see it. It's just not. You're not going to win an election until you, many elections until you realize that. Something I like to say is that people see liberals as folks who, you know, have some good ideas. They care about people. They care about making things better, but they can't be trusted with power. Uh, you know, they're kind of irresponsible and naive about how people work, you know, kind of bleeding heart liberals. And so, you know, they care more about, you know, the self-expression of some activists than like the safety of you and your family. You know, I, I think there's some truth to that. You know, there's some saying, there's the old saying that you want Whig measures and Tory governors. Uh, and I think that in order for us to win, it's really important for us to project that we are actually normal people who care about the same things that they do, that, you know, we're not hostile to faith, that we care about protecting their family from crime, uh, you know, that we care about defending the country, we care about stopping terrorism, and also that, you know, we also want to help people and make the world more fair. Um, but if we if someone thinks that we don't care about their public safety, we don't care about protecting their family, they could agree with us on healthcare, and a lot of them won't vote for us. If liberals don't care about protecting them from terrorism, I think it's somewhat of a calumny to suggest that liberals don't care about that. And so if someone were to believe that, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm in a liberal bubble, you can tell me, but if someone doesn't believe that, I don't know, I wonder if something's going on there or they're getting incorrect information or there's some sort of propaganda that's uh, getting that message across. But I think it's a little different with the 
looting that went on and the rioting that went on over the summer, just because it's not that I don't think Joe Biden or most liberals didn't care about it, but I thought that they cared about it a little. They just thought it was like regrettable. But in the whole scope of things, it was more important that we had a lot of protests. And if some stores get looted, so be it. So it's a lot different from the terrorism angle, I think. I like to go back to trust. Gallup has this thing where they ask people, you know, what parties do you think would you trust more to handle different issues? And, you know, Republicans do have, you know, big advantages on terrorism, big advantages on crime. I don't think that anyone believes that, I mean, except for the craziest Republicans, that like Democrats are pro-crime or pro-terrorism. But I think that in politics, you have to always make a bunch of trade-offs. You have to say, do we protect our civil liberties or do we protect our national security? Or do we mm-hmm. do we protect the right to self-expression or do we protect these business owners and protect people's safety? And you know, every time we go out and we say things, we project, you know, what we think the correct trade-offs between these things are. And when those are out of balance with what the median voter thinks, that's where the issues happen. Like if the median voter thinks that protests are good and looting is bad, but like they really want to make sure there's zero looting and whatever you have to do, you do it. And then they look at Democrats and go, oh, actually, Democrats don't really care about this at all. You know, their position is exactly what you said. Then that's how you lose votes. And so Mm. I think it's just really important. You know, we weren't, to be clear, we weren't in a position of power. We didn't control. We didn't control the federal government. And so I just think it's important to understand, you know, what what people think about these things and do everything we can to try to project that either we have the same values or that we, at the very least, understand what these people's values are and and not, you know, seem derisive of them. So wait, to win that particular issue, uh, what was the right thing for Democrats to say? Should they have said when the looting starts, the shooting starts? Is that the better message for median voters? No, I mean, I... Probably not. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I want to. Something I like to say is that Donald Trump is is more racist than the median voter. But I think that Donald Trump is more is more racist than like sixty or sixty five percent of voters. And like Hillary Clinton is like more woke than like ninety percent of voters. And so, you know, I, I don't think you have to be too dark. Uh, like I think what Joe Biden did. I mean, maybe he waited a little long, um, long to do it. But I think he did. You know, very forcefully condemn what was happening. He really forcefully, con- you know, he he said the words, even if it made people in his party uh, mad. And we did testing on that clip, you know, when I think he made an ad out of it where he talked about how, you know, he was against defunding the police. So he was against looting and and it tested well. You know, we it was a good ad. I think it was in the um, in the 80th or 90th percentile of ads that we tested out of the hundreds of ads we tested. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think that Biden struck a good line. I just think he was the only person in his party who did who did that, I think, for the most part. That is the right line. Like the median voter, I think it's not that there are these, they're not like Wallace voters or anything. Like the, the median voter had this position that these protests were good. There were very real issues with the police, but also that the looting was bad and that the looters, you know, the people who were doing this looting should be stopped and prosecuted. And that's a position that, you know, not just a majority of people had, I, I think a majority of African-Americans agree. I, I think, I mean, to be honest, I think it was something like 70% of African-Americans agreed um, with something like that statement, that statement that I just said. I think that Joe Biden, you know, went and said a thing that made a lot of people in his party upset. Like, you know, just to, I personally work in democratic politics and I can say like it, people were very, very mad about that ad. There were a lot of very mean, uh, not just BLM activists, like actual people who like work in democratic politics were very mad. I think the answer is the anodyne act of 
saying popular things. And I think Joe Biden did a good job at that, but it's not something that's uniformly being done across the Democratic Party. I think partly, you know, because people are afraid of backlash and partly because people who work in Democratic politics are much, much more left-wing than I think some people might appreciate. Candidates embracing an issue does not make that issue more popular. It just really mainly affects how much, how, what vote share they get. And as a result of that, these politicians are not going to embrace what you do until you make it popular. And so you should really see your challenge as how do you change the minds uh, of people. And some of that is done via this cultural channel I talked about. Some of it is going to be, you know, doing old school organizing so that you can, you know, generate media coverage. A lot of it is just writing things and making your case, but trying to tie your unpopular view to the Democratic Party is the piece that's really counterproductive and trying to tie it to the broader liberal cause. David Shore is a researcher and consultant for Democratic politicians. He will be back tomorrow to discuss the things he's rethought about political tactics and why. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Donald Trump, like all people who use teleprompters, has had his stumbles. It happens, especially if you need glasses but refuse to wear them. And it's especially notable if you never shut up about how your predecessor had an excessive reliance on teleprompters. I guess in a way, Trump frequently demonstrated how unreliant he was on the teleprompter by ignoring the teleprompter, then plowing ahead as if what he said were normal. Here's my favorite example of that. They work two jobs and sometimes three jobs. They sacrifice every day for the furniture and future of their children. You know, sometimes you do worry that the furniture of your child is to be a lazy boy who will never make it into the cabinet, let alone be a backbencher. But Trump's greatest teleprompter stumble, which he, of course, would never refer to as a stumble, took place July 4th, 2019. He had staged an Independence Day festival with tanks and the Blue Angels and a speech all loaded into the teleprompter and ready to red glare. He spoke of the Continental Army's winter in Valley Forge, of their crossing the Delaware, and, well, Donald, you take it. And seized victory from Cornwallis of Yorktown. Our army manned the airport. It ran the ramparts. It took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. And at Fort McHenry, under the rocket's red glare, it had nothing but victory. Yes, they rammed the ramparts and also the airports in 1776. Lesser muffs in that sentence Cornwallis of Yorktown. Actually, Cornwallis was of Kent. The battle was in Yorktown, whereas the battle at Fort McHenry, where the rockets red glared, wasn't in the Revolutionary War at all. It was during the Battle of 1812. Fort McHenry wasn't even named Fort McHenry until 15 years after the Revolutionary War. But really, let's not forget, ram the ramparts, took over the airports. That is the good stuff. That is why Trump is a singular figure, unless we risk forgetting these presidential orations at some point in the furniture, we shall indulge in these remembrances of things Trump. And now the spiel. Ken Jennings, the first interim host of Jeopardy and the greatest champion that game has ever known, has taken to Twitter to learn, to apologize, to defend, and then to throw his hands up over some old content he posted on the site. And sometimes not always him. 
but a friend of his. Maybe not a friend, a work colleague. Originally, Jennings was being criticized for tweets which mocked Republicans, such as when he made this remark about when Dick Cheney entered the room. It was Humpty Dumpty. No, 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 no. He wasn't mocking how people looked. He was engaged in political discourse. He, for instance, took umbrage at those who would compare Brett Kavanaugh to Jesus. He argued with a pro-life activist with the remark, quote, what's dishonest is pretending that our abortion laws wouldn't be very different if men could get pregnant. Now that, those anti-Republican tweets earned him a write-up in the Federalist.com under the headline, wannabe Jeopardy host Ken Jennings is a Kavanaugh rape truther who hates Republicans. And that was retweeted by Donald Trump Jr. But the unearthing of all these tweets that were supposedly offensive to the right led to a greater excavation of many of his other past tweets, which led to one that Dwayne, uh, sorry, which led to the unearthing of a tweet that Jennings knew was bad and in fact apologized for two years ago. You know how, though, looking for one thing will always lead to another. What's a daisy chain? Exactly. But the point is that Jennings had apologized for the jokes that he thought maybe at some point were funny, but that he has come to acknowledge weren't. In 2018, he tweeted, it was a joke so inept that it meant something very different in my head, and I regret the ableist plain reading of it. A few days ago, he again apologized for that joke, which is, I think, a 2014 joke. The joke was, there is nothing sadder than a hot person in a wheelchair. He has apologized for this several times. And so maybe things seemed okay. I mean, he offered two sincere-seeming apologies, though this was all done on Twitter, and it can be mistaken for another institution of its ilk. What is Bellevue? Because now we come to Bean Dad. So there's a guy named John Roderick who told a threaded story on Twitter about his nine-year-old wanting a, a snack, some beans, and he kind of gave her a can opener and a can of beans and said, figure it out. Roderick bragged about his parenting prowess, but much of Twitter turned him into a villain until a friend of Roderick spoke up on his behalf. Who's the white knight? It was you, Ken. It was you. Because Jennings and Roderick host a podcast together. I always say, solo hosting is the only way to go. And Jennings thought he could wade into yet another Twitter controversy and smooth the waters. And to quote a great white, Jennings apparently did not wonder. What is once bitten, twice shy? No, he did not. And after that, John Roderick's Twitter past was unearthed. Given that Twitter users are not knowing for that thing when you just let it alone. You know that thing? What is let sleeping dogs lie? Yeah, that's the thing. So what we found out from his past tweets is that John Roderick might be a neo-Nazi. I would say that seems unlikely. He seems more like the sort of guy who, in 2011, engaged in ironic anti-Semitism. Jews ruin everybody's fun, he tweeted. He said the founders intended the USA as a white homeland. I don't know if he believes that. He's awful and deserves horrible things to be said to him, but he probably doesn't believe that. I would guess he was just making some sort of a joke. Ken Jennings, who seems to be a very nice guy and a devout guy and a kind guy, seems to think that John Roderick is a good enough guy. But we can't really tell because John Roderick deleted his account, which I think is kind of a Twitter tactic of last resort. If you can't do the thing where you deflect or you go on the offensive or you create a greater scandal as a distraction, you know that thing. What is like the dog? That's the thing. And so as we stand here, Ken Jennings has not helped himself with 
the engagement and the answers that he's given about his podcast co-hosts past tweet or his theory of bean self-sufficiency. John Roderick, you know, for all I know, might be the worst human being to ever co-host a podcast with a friendly Mormon savant. But then again, that friendly Mormon savant might be an ableist horror show, an embarrassment to the Jeopardy brand, or at least an overwhelmed quasi-celebrity who has proved ill-adept at navigating fierce blowback from all sides. One who inspires exactly zero people to ask, Who is the master of disaster? But you know... I actually have a different take or different analysis about all of this, which is that it used to be the case that public speech that was engaging in edgy political or offensive to activist communities, that kind of speech was the kind of speech that no one in public would ever want to do and expect to remain in public. Well, there were carve outs, I guess, for shock jocks or comics or certain politicians with fervid bases who just didn't care. But in the period between when electronic media was invented, pretty much, broadcast media, let's say, through mm, the turn of the 20th to the 21st century, about that period, it was the default setting that a person in the public eye simply could not say things that would give offense. But that changed. That all changed. And it changed with the destruction of the monoculture. I once interviewed Tom Colicchio who is unabashedly liberal on Twitter. And I marveled that a restaurateur, someone whose business interests are to serve and feed all members of the public, he is in the hospitality industry, could be so bold and outspoken on Twitter. And he said, you know, never hurt me. That is just how I am, he said. In fact, he gained some fans because of it. And I thought about that, and you know, it makes sense. Because a restaurant on the level of the establishments that Colicchio runs, they're not trying to be McDonald's. They're not even trying to be Ruth Chris. They're trying to exist outside the monoculture, within a niche culture, the culture that has supplanted the monoculture. And as the monoculture subsided, there have become fewer and fewer costs to letting all the public in on who you are or what you think, even when it's not really what you think. It's just being daring to make, quote unquote, edgy jokes in a public setting. But, and this is why Ken Jennings is in the middle of this particular backlash, Jeopardy is the monoculture. It is the last vestige of the monoculture. CNN anchors lecture on about the horrors of the Trump administration. They just break format and tear into them for six or seven or eight minute chunks right into the camera. It's like Nixon losing Cronkite every single night. And these days, it's not just punk rockers or Ted Nugent, but the mildest of sitcom actors who just need us to know what their stances are on cabinet officials. My observation isn't that they shouldn't say that. It's that at one point, they very much wouldn't. It would be illogical. (laughs) It would be insane if Fred Gwynn needed us to know that Herman Munster was disgusted by everything that Spiro Agnew had done. But not Jeopardy. Jeopardy's the exception. Jeopardy's the last vestige of the monoculture. So the rules of the monoculture apply, but these weren't the rules that Jeopardy was playing by. Now, it's ironic considering that Ken Jennings made his fame and much of his actual fortune as a contestant on a game show governed by a clear set of rules. The monoculture, those rules embedded in the monoculture, those elevated him. But then he's gone on to have another career and made the rest of his money and extended his fame by building a brand like we all do through books and podcasts and tweets that weren't governed by the do not offend decree, but were governed by the rules of appealing to small, impassioned audiences. But now 
What we see in Jennings is the monoculture crashing into the niche culture. And it's not a surprise that even one of the smartest people around miscalculated what he would end up smelling like after getting dragged through this ecosystem. What is a rose? Oh, sorry. No, not a rose. Maybe it was an impossible task. Maybe the only hope for Ken's chances to stay at host is to realize that Jeopardy is a show where the audience is sold and sure supplements. So maybe they're not as online or as sensitive to online clamor as, you know, everyone on Twitter seems to be. These were questionable associations and regrettable tweets. I don't know, maybe about them. Ken Jennings needs to provide more answers, although it was never the answers that Ken got right in the first place. But it is certainly true that Jennings' job with Jeopardy has gone from on it to in it. And that's it for today's show. All the questions you heard Ken Jen ask in that segment was from the September 14th, 2004 episode of Jeopardy. It was Jennings' 45th win. The producer who put that together was Shayna Roth, who when she gets in the editing zone, it's like, I don't know, that space where no one escapes from or is heard from. What is the black hole of Calcutta? Yeah. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She is trying but failing to get this nickname going for John Ossoff, who she contends is barely old enough to shave. Who's the Georgia Peach? Leach Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. She recommends using brand name portable audio devices to listen to them and not this kind of off-brand of your... What is Iowa? Nah. The gist. We once drunkenly tumbled over a staircase, breaking the banister and earning this nickname. What's the rail splitter? And uh, this stew of internal fluids spewed out. What is blood and guts? Until my wife, Michelle, mended me, earning this nickname. Who's Claire Barton? Wild weekend, I know. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.